Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the source of all wisdom and understanding, that you enlighten the minds of your children, um, that you are at work in us by your spirit now as we hear your word and take it in. Please help us to be good hearers and listeners of what you have to say. Help us to be uh, responsive to the way that you'll change us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know how you felt as you heard all of that being read out. Uh, there's probably a lot of reactions that could happen. There's a few parts of this passage that are shocking. There's a few parts of this passage that people find extremely confusing. Uh, there's other parts that are just downright gloomy and depressing. And honestly, on a morning like this, really, is this the sort of thing you want to hear? But Amidst the mess and some of the jumbled confusion that it might seem, there's a one thread that goes through everything. Um, when I first was looking at different translations of this chapter, I laughed when I read the NIV and the one heading of the whole chapter just said wisdom, as if they couldn't think of anything else to say. But I think there's actually some um, truth in that. Wisdom is running throughout all of this but it's wisdom in all of its mess. It's wisdom in all of its reality, wisdom in the way that we actually see it working and failing. It's our wisdom compared to God's wisdom. It's all of the pleasures and disappointments and failings that come with it. So if you're coming into this chapter with a bit of a mood of confusion, of shock, of not knowing what to do with it, I think that's what the preacher here is trying to convey. Through all of this that he's doing, he's using some really clever things to try to show us more and more of what we are like, just as we've been seeing all throughout the book. So as we get into it, this chapter, and really the last verse of chapter 6, is turning us to the second half of the book. Chapters 1 to 6 demonstrated the vanity of our continued attempts to try to find meaning and gain in thing after thing. This full array of search of meaning was paraded before us and everything ended in vanity and meaninglessness. And in chapter 6, verse 12, it leaves us hanging in this second half of the book with two questions. Verse 6 says... For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? It's clear from the first six chapters that man cannot answer these questions on his own. But now, as we get to the second half of this book, from chapter 7 and all the way onwards, we start to see the picture of the true answer to these questions. They draw our attention to the one who holds all the answers, not ourselves, but God who is above the sun in the heavens. As we get to today's passage, you'll notice as well, there's a sudden shift in genre or tone. It's like we're suddenly in the land of Proverbs in these first 12 verses. It's not a coincidence. Like I was saying before, they're all seeped with wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. There's more wisdom in here than in any of the last five chapters or so. 
It's this rich picture of wisdom that's going to feel a bit different to Proverbs and feel even a bit different to what we saw already in chapters 1 and 2 in the first two weeks of our series. And it's wisdom that we see in the messy reality of life amidst adversity. This first six verses in this group, in this bit that feels like Proverbs, they're talking about the goods that can come from taking in suffering rather than ignoring it. They sound really gloomy, but they're actually trying to point us to seeing that there's good that comes out of our experience of suffering. The first one in verse 1, it's saying just like a good name, so good reputation, good character, is better than ointment that just covers the outside rather than what's on the inside, so is the day of mourning, our day of death, better than the day of birth. Last week, Daryl showed a similar verse in chapter 4, but that time it was talking about how death is better because it's the end of suffering. Here it's actually drawing our attention to something a little bit different. Unlike birth and the celebration of that, which is filled with so far unmet promises of what could be, death actually shows what has come from someone. Death shows who you're truly made of. It's the true test of who you were. People are actually mourning who you were, who you were to them and what you had done. And the next five verses are carrying on in that vein. They're contrasting the picture of mourning with celebration. They're picturing the wisdom in joining in in mourning, of not ignoring it, compared to the foolishness of carrying on in celebration without um, any heed to death. Verse 2 shows that knowing the inevitability of death, rather than ignoring it, helps us live wisely now. Verses 3 and 4 show that sorrow turns our hearts to the right place. And Now, when we think of heart, we're usually thinking of the emotion side, the feeling side, but the Old Testament picture of the heart is a little bit more rich and complicated than that. Often it's got to mind the things that we focus our attention on and our thoughts even and the centre of our being. And so this Jewish picture of the heart is showing us that when we think of death, when we reflect on it, when we join in on mourning, it actually puts our centre, our focus, our very heart into the right place, into the path towards wisdom. And ignoring it actually leads to foolishness. Finally, in this group of the sort of positive six verses, five and six show us that there's wisdom in experiencing the pain of rebuke. The crackling of thorns imagery is a bit weird, um, but it's referring to them using thorny branches as fire starters. Um, These branches come to light really quickly, the ones that they were using, but they also stop burning really quickly. And he's saying that the song and laughter and celebration that the fools have been joining in on in all of these six verses, it looks bright. It looks sunny and happy and glorious for a little while, but it's soon gone. It soon perishes. It's soon seen to be the vanity that it is. Whereas the pain of right rebuke from wise people actually has a lasting effect. 
our experience of pain and suffering and particularly leaning into the pain and suffering that comes from death, there's actually good things about it. I think so often, like I was saying at the start, we actually want to avoid thinking about suffering and death because we prefer to focus on the good things, the happy things, all the great things we've received. Even as Christians, the great and immeasurable gift that we've received in Jesus. We don't want to think about the bad stuff. But the preacher is saying that we don't actually get the, bad, the good stuff if we don't dwell on the bad stuff. So often we want to focus on the good things, but there's wisdom in thinking through death of knowing what we're like as finite beings who live and die and keep in this cycle. Experiencing death shapes our hearts and minds to rightly approach the world that we live in as created beings. But as if to keep us on our toes, suddenly the preacher shifts in verse 7 to actually say the bad things about focusing in on death. The dangers that come from thinking too much about suffering and oppression in our lives. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. I think he's simply saying that dwelling too much on suffering can tear us apart. If we think about it too much, we go, there's nothing we can do about it. And it drives us to our end. It drives us to want to give in to compromising situations to try to get ourselves out of it. That's the bribe imagery. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. I think that's an implicit warning. When we experience suffering, it can make us proud and indignant that this situation is something we don't deserve. We shouldn't have to put up with it. We shouldn't have to keep going. We shouldn't have to be patient. And instead, he's calling to wait. It's not about the beginning. It's about the end. Verse 9. Oppression can lead us to anger that's not just temporary, but lodges itself deep within us. A bitterness that doesn't go away. Thinking so much and being so absorbed on suffering and death and hardship in the world now can leave us in a really bad place. And it's a place that, in verse 10, often leads us thinking about the glory days of before. When we're really suffering now, suddenly the times from before look so appealing and we forget the hardships that were still there. All the good parts are in our minds and we conveniently ignore the bad. This doesn't come out of true wisdom, as the preacher says. Verses 11 and 12 are a bit messy. There's good and bad in both of them, I think. On the one hand, they paint wisdom as advantageous. It is uh, helpful when we have an inheritance in spending what we're given well. It even can extend our life. But this wisdom is only good while you're still living. That's verse 11. And even the life that's extended in verse 12, it still ends in death. Wisdom is messy especially the wisdom that we try to find. This picture of wisdom in Ecclesiastes has been a really complicated one, and 
so far we're starting to see that this wisdom that it keeps talking about is talking more and more about the kind of human wisdom that's all too familiar with us. So if you're feeling a bit uneasy right now, like what are we actually meant to do about death and suffering? I think we're meant to feel that. We're meant to feel the messiness. It's meant to be a reality check on the relationship between the two. He's trying to subvert our desire to have this easy silver bullet of this is the one thing to do because life isn't like that. It's messy. It's a reality that's all too familiar for us. And so what does the preacher conclude? His first conclusion in this chapter is in verses 13 and 14. He offers us the thought to look to God, to look to the God who made and controls all of the days that we face. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Ian Proven, who's a commentator on this book, he explains these verses this way. What can wisdom really achieve? What is it really for? The biblical answer is that wisdom can never achieve for human beings the kind of control over life and destiny that they aspire to. At all times, it is God who controls the times. At all times, it is God who rules the universe, and his ways are inscrutable. In the midst of mess and confusion, we're told to consider God and what he's done. He's made all the days. He's made the joyful ones. He's made the hard ones. He's the only one that's in control. He's the only one who is Lord over them all. It's foolish to think that we can, that we can control them somehow with our wisdom, with our careful planning, with our careful response to what's happening. So far, we've had lots of calls throughout the book to be joyful and receive in what he's given us. And this time, there's a bit of a richer picture of that. We're told in the joyful days, be joyful. But in the times of adversity, to consider God, who made both the joyful days and the hard days. He's saying, yes, there's good and there's hard, but don't just focus on the good and ignore the hard. God uses the hard days to lift our gaze to him, to tell us and teach us to submit to him as the one who made it all, who's in control of time and the days. All this is meant to give us pause to consider God, whether it's the joyful times in thanksgiving to him, whether it's the hard times continually in thanksgiving to him for pointing us to our need and dependence on him. That's the first half. The second half shift gears a bit. In verse 15 and onwards, wisdom is still there, but this idea of righteousness keeps coming up again and again. And it's probably the densest chapter of righteousness in the whole book. 
It's worth taking a step back here to consider what we actually mean by righteousness. I don't think we actually use it much, even in church, let alone in everyday talk. And ironically, most of the time when I hear righteousness, when I'm out and about, it's actually in a really negative way. The righteous people are the ones who are too good for their own goods. They're the self-righteous people. It's a dirty word for religious people. Even though the general sense of the word is to be doing the moral right thing, often it's actually seen as the foolish thing in our society because it means you're going to get hard done by or taken advantage of or it means that you're too simple and not thinking about the complexity of the world. But what do we actually think about ourselves? I think this chapter is trying to paint this picture of what righteousness is like, and I think we tend to think of ourselves as righteous, even if we don't use the word. More often than not, we do the right thing, right? More often than not, I'll go into the shops, I'll head into Woolies, and most people are buying what's on the shelves. Most people aren't stealing them. Generally, stuff seems to work. There's lots of bad things around the edges, but generally, people do the right thing. Surely, if we weighed ourselves up, we're not bad. Often, when we come into disagreements, our first thought is that we are in the right. We never really go into them thinking we're wrong. We think we're the good guys nearly all the time. So I think that sets us up well to lean into what the preacher's saying in this part of the chapter. In verse 15, he says, In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is a bit different to earlier in Ecclesiastes. We had in chapter 2, what's the end of everyone? Everyone dies. The wise die. The fools die. It's all vanity. Here, it's actually the injustice side of it. Here, the wicked seem like they win. The wickedness that they do is actually lengthening their lives. It's not shortening it. It's not the general Proverbs strategy of do the right thing under God and your life will go well. The preacher notices that in life that bad people get away with it. And not just get away with it, but prosper. And the right people, they're not just um, having difficulties. Some of them are dying because of them doing what is right. What do we do with this? The preacher goes into some verses that are actually really controversial. In verses 16 and 17, he says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. There's a lot of speculation of what these are actually saying. Um, I reckon if I asked the average kid um, what they reckoned about this, they'd say something like, oh, it's everything in moderation. So 
Don't do too much good stuff because that will lead you down a bad path. Don't do too much bad stuff. A bit of balance of both and life will go well. But I don't think it's saying that. I think instead it's pointing to two wrong attitudes that we can really easily take as we think of the injustice of what happens with death. The first one in verse 16 is living the super-righteous, self-righteous life. It's the kind of life that the Pharisees lived in Jesus' time, wanting instead of going, oh, these rules that God's made were enough, adding rule after rule after rule so that it would be practically impossible to break God's law at all. It's the kind of living that thinks that we can be righteous on our own, the kind of living that ignores so much of what we've seen in Ecclesiastes of our inability to do anything of lasting gain or value because of our finiteness as people. It's clear later in the chapter that our righteousness is limited and even the most righteous are sinful. Straining with all our being to live perfectly, the preacher's saying, can only end in disappointment and failure and destruction because it's us trying to live like we should know we can't. So don't live like this. That's the first attitude. The second attitude is the complete opposite of this. It's saying, well, if we can't be righteous, who cares? We can do what we want, give in to all wickedness. It doesn't matter. The wicked seem to get away with it, right? It seems to go well for them. If you can't be perfect, why try it all? The preacher's saying this is really dangerous too. Obviously, it's not a case of a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. Instead, he's trying to help us walk in the middle between the two. Both of these attitudes see life as primarily about us. One of them says that we can do all that we need to get right with God or to be right around other people, that we can do it. The other one is we can't, so let's do whatever we want. Instead, in verse 18... He's showing us the third way, the way of fearing God, the way of seeing God as ruler and king, just like earlier in the chapter, the way that helps us escape the dangers of both of these attitudes. We can't be righteous on our own, so don't try to be. We are desperately in a terrible situation in our relationship with God because of our sin, So don't make it even worse. We need to fear God and live according to him rather than our own plans and schemes to try to live in response to the problem of death. But before we get too comfortable, the rest of the chapter starts to shatter even more this idea of our own righteousness. It starts to take it apart piece by piece and show us that we don't really have any hope in it at all on our own. Starting with verse 19, it seems a bit positive at first. True wisdom gives me even more strength than even ten rulers in a city. But I think it's actually a really cynical view of humanity. It's saying that even ten of the most capable and powerful men 
can't match the true power of wisdom. Even the height of humanity in a big city, in all their planning and schemes, they can't match the true wisdom of God. Verse 20 makes it even clearer. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Notice it's both aspects of sin. No one really does good. And not just that, no one avoids sinning. Paul echoes this in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one is truly righteous. That's why advice can't be trusted. In verses 21 and 22, the preacher is saying, we know from ourselves our motives are crooked and evil and we curse people falsely instead of blessing them. So how can we even trust what people are saying to us if our motives are wrong in the first place? The preacher reflects on this personally even more deeply. In verses 23 and 24. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off And deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Remember so far, this preacher has been the picture of King Solomon. He's the guy that if you think wisdom in the Old Testament, you go, Solomon. He's this height of wisdom. He's famous from it. All of the countries around would come and gather to hear him. And yet true wisdom is so unsearchable for humanity that even Solomon can say it was impossibly far from him. Our wisdom and our righteousness, we start to see it for what it truly is from these verses. The Bible's picture of true wisdom and righteousness points us instead to God's standard. It's not just us weighing ourselves up and thinking, yeah, we're generally good, we generally know the right thing to do. It's been compared to the one who is impossibly good, who knows all things, who knows what is best. We're not fundamentally the good guys, no matter how much we think we are. We can't be the ones that find righteousness and wisdom ourselves. If we do, we're stuck in vanity in the same way we've seen again and again in Ecclesiastes. But this doesn't stop the preacher. He keeps giving it a fair go. You can't fault his efforts throughout the whole book. He's keeping doing his grand and careful search. He's searching for the scheme of all things. He's adding all things together one by one. And yet he still doesn't find it. And he ends up finding something worse than nothing. Verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters or chains, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, But a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made men upright, 
but they have sought out many schemes. Now, if you thought the other verses were controversial, these are even more controversial. Uh, if you read the NIV, it says that he found only one upright man, but no upright women. And that makes it even trickier. Uh, this makes one really famous commentator go as far as saying that this helps prove that the preacher is a misogynist. This is pretty extreme. Um, I don't think so. And I don't think it fits in the message of the book. So what do you do with it instead? I reckon there's two options that are pretty good. Um, I like the second one more, but um, there's, there's good points for both of them. The first one is that he's referring to this personified picture of wisdom and folly in the book of Proverbs. So far, we've had a lot of Proverbs-y feelings and vibes throughout the chapter. And so it makes sense that if he's looking for wisdom and can't find it, what does he find instead? He finds Miss Folly. He finds the one that ensnares him to sin. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, alternatively, and I think this is more likely, I think he's talking about his personal experience that shows how far wisdom is from him. Quite conveniently, King Solomon, remember he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That adds up to 1,000. And King says that they led his heart astray from the Lord. And honestly, I think him searching after them shows his heart was already astray. This makes sense of the picture of a 1,000. And his failed search for the right companion shows his failed search for wisdom. And what he was left with was worse than nothing. And I think it's still a bit unsettling, but the later verses help us figure out that it's not about men and women being better or worse than each other, but simply just how unrighteous and sinful we all are. It's not meant to be a universal reality. It's the vantage point of this guy and what he's searching for. Verses 26 and 28, they're not about particular evil of women. You could write the same thing about men. And throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, there's plenty of examples of men that have done evil things and even towards women too. They don't exclude the opposite. They're simply the experience of the preacher. And I think that's even clearer once we get to the final conclusion of the chapter in verse 29. Whereas essentially, he's saying that our sin is our fault. Despite God making humanity good, our scheming ultimately led to the downfall of sin. And I think he's trying to echo back to Genesis 3. What was the picture of creation? God made it so good. He blessed us abundantly. There was one thing he told us not to do, and it was to eat from this tree. And yet humans distrusted God and his goodness. They thought that he intended harm for them. And in their scheming from taking from the tree, they were trying to do it to gain wisdom. What did they gain? It was death. It was hard toil and work. 
It was all of these things that we've seen time and time again in Ecclesiastes. I think the preacher's really scary conclusion is even our searching for wisdom and scheming after wisdom can lead us to sin rather than finding the end result. None of it helps us escape from it. We see this all around us, don't we? I've heard of plenty of people who have gone through a change in life and going, no, this is the way I need to live, and have abandoned people, who have hurt people in the process of trying to find what is good and the secret to life and how to live. It's not the way that it should be. We are at fault. God made us good. And yet in our scheming that continues today, we continue to lead down the path of sin. So that's pretty gloomy and bleak. But what do we do with this today as God's people? I think the first thing is that our experience of suffering and sin should make us come to God. I think that's really clear from that first conclusion that the preacher makes. But we need to keep hearing it, don't we? So often we want to avoid spending time thinking about the bad stuff in life, let alone our own sin. We're really happy sometimes even to talk about the sin of other people, but our own never gets airtime. It's just positive stories. I remember growing up, one of my parents would never watch the nighttime news each day because they didn't want to think about any of the bad stuff. They'd rather not know anything of what's happening than know that all of this yuck was going on in the world. And we're like that in our walk with God and with each other in church too. Instead of ignoring it, we need to be reminded of our inability, of our finiteness, of our need and total dependence on God to show us what we need. I think this happens too when churches start to shift because of this same mindset. Um, I've heard people push back against the preaching about sin and judgment and death because people go, that's not what people want to hear. That's not the message that will get people in the doors. We need to talk about God's love and kindness and blessing. The other stuff will come in time. That's okay. It's better that someone's completely accepted and welcomed and never told that they need to change. But to truly appreciate God's character and our absolute need for him, we need to stand convicted of our own unrighteousness and hopelessness without his intervention. Instead of something to be avoided or minimised, we need to come face to face with the reality that this is who we are. And God uses this for our own good to help us see our true need for real hope with him. And the great news is that this is hope that's offered to all of us, isn't it? Through depending on Christ's death for us, we're given his righteousness and his wisdom, his salvation. It ties all the ideas of the passage together. Jesus didn't shy away from sin and death. He had every right to He was truly God. He was truly righteous. 
He had every power to be able to avoid the consequences of sin and death, and yet he willingly submitted to the will of his Father and his salvation plan for us. He grieved at just how lost humanity was, and he did what none of us could do, the only man without sin, yet suffering to the point of death for the sin of us, taking on God's judgment for it so that we could have life in him. In Ecclesiastes 7, true righteousness is alien to us. True wisdom is unsearchable, and pursuing either of them gets us nowhere. But the work of Jesus means these things aren't just possible, they're given to us, they're lavished on us freely. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When we receive receive Christ, we receive his righteousness and wisdom and sanctification and redemption. Because of this, when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness, one we could never have but is given freely because of the good news of the gospel. We are lost without God, and yet his spirit dwells in us, pointing us to what is good in our lives every day and changing us more and more to have the mind of Christ, to think wise and righteous thoughts about how to live now. Knowing this means that we're freed, but knowing this means we can't boast either. Without Christ, we are the bad guys, but because of his work, God looks at us and sees pure and perfect righteousness. And that's something we can have through simple trust in him. As we wrap up this morning, chapter 7 started us after these two questions from the end of chapter 6. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is goodness. This is wisdom we can never attain. Not ourselves. Man can't know. And he uses these times of suffering and death and adversity to show us that we can't know and to point us to see him as the answer. It's a goodness that's so alien to us, but the good news of the gospel is that we can know the righteousness of Christ because of what he's done. Faith means receiving it as a gift. What was impossible is now freely given because of the work of Jesus. We need to keep being reminded of this. So let me pray that God would help us as we do that.
Heavenly Father, we are painfully aware of the sin around us and in ourselves, of our constant confusion, of not knowing what to do in so many circumstances, of the failing of even the best of human wisdom in the countries and cities and houses in our midst. But Lord, let those times point us to you as the God who made the days, as the God who is in control and who does this to point us to need, for our need to depend on you. Lord, thank you that this isn't an empty hope, but a hope that has been won and bought by the death of Jesus that means that we now, by faith, can know life and wisdom and righteousness that comes through our union with him. Lord, help us not to be distracted from this great news. Help us to depend on it day by day. Help us to be joyfully and gratefully praising you for all this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.